economic statistics. A triple dip recession. Collapsing commodities. Monetary policy has to do the heavy lifting work. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing on this Friday morning with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. Asian futures rise with U.S. stocks as the dollar slips. The PBOC is pushing ahead with plans to liberalize interest rates even as the Chinese economy slows. And China must be on alert for currency depreciation. Only a handful of people are focused on the magnitude of China's slowdown or consider its far-reaching implications. Today, we'll ask uh, the Reorient Group's Steve Wang about the implications of this for global investors. Then Asian frontier capitals Thomas Hugger will give us uh, some insight on the Mongolian economy and uh, performance of its stock market. And our last guest this morning is a third-generation family member of a household bakery spanning more than seven decades. Kiwa Bakery's Carlson Wong tells us how their traditional brand has reinvented itself in Hong Kong. Tobias Hexter is guest host today. Good morning, Tobias. Good morning, Renita. So, Tobias, the dollar has slipped slightly. But uh, it's still the strongest it's been in a very long time. This strong U.S. dollar, how much of a systemic risk does it create? Not necessarily yet, because at the start of QE in the U.S., we saw the dollar also get quite a bit weaker. But it certainly makes things a lot more interesting out there, especially how are some of the emerging markets stacking up, let's say, Latin America. All right, hold those thoughts. We'll have to uh, discuss them with Steve Wang in just a bit. U.S. stock market indices rose as the rally in the dollar waned. Financial companies gained after a number of banks got approval from the U.S. Fed to raise dividends and buy back shares. The Dow rose 259 points to 17,895. The S&P 500 was also up over 1% to 2,065. And the Nasdaq added 0.9% to end at 4,893. A strong U.S. dollar is bad for businesses and good for U.S. consumers. Does that mean, though, that all non-dollar holders become the losers? Here's Terry Wiseman, um, global interest rates and currency strategist at Macquarie. If the U.S. consumer is the winner, okay, consumers elsewhere who are not uh, uh, dollar holders, who don't earn income in dollars, are the losers. They're going to have to pay more. In fact, you can make a case that they certainly are not winning as much by this gasoline price decline because in dollar terms, or at least rather in local currency terms, their local currencies, absolutely, consumers in any countries who have seen their currencies depreciate are, are, are uh, going to lose out here. But I'll tell you what, there's another big loser out there, and these are companies abroad who have borrowed in dollars. We've had a very, very large uh, 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 increase in the last few years of foreign companies who have borrowed a lot of money in dollars, right? So now this debt is sitting on their balance sheet. They need to service this debt by paying their creditors in dollars, and those dollars are getting more expensive. Another argument to be made about dollar strength is that the lower cost of imported goods and weak oil prices in the U.S. allows the Fed to keep its interest rates lower for longer, perhaps because of the disinflationary impact. I don't think this is necessarily going to delay the Fed hike. What it might do is result in a situation where the ultimate 
uh, Fed funds rate is lower than it would otherwise have been. Mm -hmm. I think what it means is that instead of terminating at, let's say, a 3.5% Fed funds rate sometime in 2017 or 18, that we're probably going to terminate at about 2%, because I think there's going to be some long-lasting effect from this disinflation that we might see from a stronger dollar. But keep in mind, the Fed is not going to consider this or contemplate this to be a tightening. It's a normalization. We have abnormally low interest rates at this point, even considering what's happening with the dollar. The Fed needs to normalize and needs to do that soon. Brian Jacobson, chief portfolio strategist at Wells Fargo Funds Management, says that markets are ready for the Fed move. The, for the most part, equity markets are more inoculated against Fed moves. Doesn't mean that they're immune from Fed moves or anticipations of what the Fed may do. I think that more of the volatility is on the fixed income side as opposed to the equity side. Uh, if you think about the Fed trying to raise rates very gradually, they want to be reasonably confident that uh, they're going to hit their 2% inflation target over the medium term. That doesn't really call for them to raise rates too soon or buy too much. So I think that it actually creates a, still a very conducive environment for corporate profit growth and for equity investors. There's certainly less uncertainty now with uh, the ECB spending and the Fed raising rates, at least by the September meeting, or, you know, certainly that's the thought. The question is, where does this take U.S. equities in the foreseeable future? David Bianco is the head of U.S. equity strategy at Deutsche Bank, and he says that we might be in for a pullback. I think it's probably more like a 3 to 5% drop from where we are now. I think the full drop from the highs is 5 to 9%, putting us, I think, most likely back to the mid-1900s uh, as investors internalize that the Fed is going to hike, which we think is appropriate. We think the economy will continue to grow, labor market continue to tighten, but the dollar strength is going to uh, pretty much prevent any earnings growth out of the S&P in 2015. But Brian Jacobson is forecasting a 20,000 Dow. Well, I think you have to ask yourself whether or not you're willing to give up 20% on the upside to protect yourself from 5% on the downside. So, you know, he says maybe we could see a 5% to 9% move down. Sure, you could say that at any given point in time, really. But I think that the odds are really uh, more likely that we're going to continue to see corporate profit growth and people continue to move into equities. We haven't really seen, as uh, John Manley, who's been on a number of times, he's our chief equity strategist, saying this move from the push-bull market to a pull-bull market where people are going into equities because they they kind of feel like they have to. They're being pushed into it by Fed policy. Right. And they haven't really been drawn into it just by the sheer animal magnetism associated with investing in equities. All right, let's bring in our first guest of this morning, Steve Wang, who is research director at the Reorient Group. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. So, Steve, lots of lots of discussion here on the strong U.S. dollar and how it is impacting the rest of the world. Tobias says it's certainly making things more interesting. Brian Jacobson doesn't seem too concerned. What are your thoughts? Strong U.S. dollar means you know, good time for us in Hong Kong. You know, Hong Kong dollar has never been this strong and it's a good time for us to go out and buy stuff. And that basically is the same thought that's going through our friends in China. You know, Chinese consumers are dying to go to Europe. They're dying to go abroad to shop. This is really an interesting phenomenon. China's GDP is slowing, but it's still growing at a pretty fast pace. We see this year as a year where you really need to look at what is the consumer behavior? How are they changing? and invest along those lines. For example, I think people should invest in financial stocks in China or Chinese-related financials because as they get richer, as they buy more, they want to buy, uh, you know, they don't want to just buy jewelries. They want to buy financial planners, financial plans. So you've seen AIA sales over the Chinese New Year very, very strong. 
And along those lines, I think they also wanted to you know, travel far more. So airlines are not a strong top pick for, in my mind. I'm also quite positive on the U.S. stock, actually, because I think that you know, people look at U.S. as, as a strong dollar, strong, uh, strong economy in terms of its, 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 what it has to offer. I'm buying U.S. biotechs. I think that, that sector has got a lot to run, uh, apart from the, just the reg- regular bread and butter. So you can arguably say Li and Fong is a good buy as well, but uh, Li and Fong is certainly facing pressure from the neighboring economies like Korea, Vietnam, the frontier economies. Mm. Their currencies also actually gotten a lot cheaper vis-a-vis the Roman B. So from that perspective, the exporter hasn't really outperformed, and that's sort of the reason why you see the Hansen Index is sort of lagging behind the other guys. Tobias, you, you had some thoughts on that? Yeah, as a whole and a bit, your latest statement uh, alluded to that a bit. Uh, because everybody seems to be winning. Uh, European markets are exploding because the euro gets so weak. Uh, Wall Street has a big pop because despite the dollar, everything's great. This is good for Hong Kong. Who's going to be the loser? Because in the end, it does turn out uh, currency devaluations is a zero-sum game. Yeah, that's right. I think that you're right. I mean, the, right now the financial market acts in a very strange way, but that is the way that you know the market likes to trade. And not, we're not exactly trading on fundamental, unfortunately, anymore. So, I think the biggest loser has to be you know partially what you know, like you said, uh, somebody said that you know companies that borrow in debt, uh, borrow in foreign currency debt. So Chinese companies, for example, some of the property holder, they be they may be under risk right now, and that's why you see their valuation trading at a three, four, five times PE multiple. It's very, very cheap. I mean, right now the real estate sector in China is not doing all that great either. So that's a that's probably one of the most risky spot I'm seeing right now. But yeah, Steve, there's a lot in China that isn't looking good. I mean, industrial production is uh, has had the weakest year over year reading, um, you know, ever outside the global financial crisis. Uh, uh, retail sales the, the lowest in nine years. Fixed assets investment lowest in 14 years. The producer price index fell 4.8 percent versus the prior year. Electrical consumption weakest in 16 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, the picture just isn't pretty. Uh, the PBOC has cut rate twice uh, in the last three months and um, cut reserve requirements also for lenders. In February, money supply, of course, has grown. But add to this the fact that the central bank said that it may lift the cap on rates um, that banks can pay depositors to increase competition in the sector. I mean, is this the hard landing that the China bears have been talking about? No. Well, I'm, I'm, I totally agree with what the, the sad picture you're painting about the industrial economy. And, and really, I mean, tell me about it. I'm the economist and I have to write all about that. It's a very, <laughs> very difficult job. But it, in the industrial economy, there's really nothing that sexy to talk about anymore. Uh, look at the last year's GDP breakdown also. You know, the industrial economy is slowing. Manufacturing sector is, is, is not doing that well. The PMI is always just hovering around 50. It almost looks like it's artificial. It's, I think the best part that's happening in China is the financial sector. And this is where you alluded to on the interest-free liberalization. How, how come are they so confident in pushing ahead, pushing ahead reforms on, on that factor when everything else seems to be so weak? I think the answer, we had a long discussion with some top think tank people in China. And really, they feel like the economy has gotten so large that you really need to have a fair Pricing uh, in a me- pricing mechanism, especially interest rate in China, mm. so as to properly allocate risk. If you don't do that right now, and you keep and and you try to keep going back to say a, a QE, which you know was a big topic earlier this week, 
then you just create more of the same thing and you end up what what's like Europe right now, right? I mean, so China has to basically really liberalize interest rate, pricing of risk, and then going forward and develop a bond market. I mean, I don't want to go into detail in there, but basically there's there's urgency in the in the in the top level to see you know China's financial market getting more matured, getting more developed. So that's why you're seeing, uh, you know, seemingly the economy is slowing down, but they have to speed up financial reform. All right. Because they have to. Steve, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Steve Wong, and he is the research director at the Reorient Group. Well, Mongolia has seen a 6.7% growth in its ultra-high net worth population in 2014. This is according to a wealth report from Knight Frank. But behind the scenes, there are actually concerns about the economy. Our next guest, Asian Frontier Capital's CEO and founder, Thomas Hugger, tells us why. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning. So, Thomas, the Mongolian stock market has gone down quite a bit in the last couple of months. Why is this? Uh, the main problem is that the past Mongolian governments agreed, uh, so, sorry, angered foreign investors in the past three years. For example, it has an issue with Rio Tinto over Oyu Tolgoi or OT, how it's called locally, one of the largest copper deposits on earth over the second development phase of this mine. This and other issues with foreign investors has brought down the investment confidence of foreign investors foreign investors. Tobias, what do you think about that? I mean, Mongolia was like every foreign investor's, you know, darling place to go to. Yeah, it has to do with the commodities. I think oddly enough, the more, the, the more prevalent the commodities are on the ground, the more difficult the government system is that's on top of it. Maybe coincidence, maybe not. So Thomas, um, you know, of course, we've seen this property market boom in the last few years. Why is there such a conflicting picture? I mean, are we going to continue to see a decline in stocks? Okay, first of all, with this uh, report, uh, I went online yesterday and checked this uh, report. And what I saw is that uh, the, uh, the number of uh, ultra high net worth persons living in Mongolia in this statistic uh, was in 2013, 45 people, <laughs> and in 2014, 48 people. So uh, it rose uh, by three persons in one year, or which is 6.7%. So that's why it came uh, on third place. Mm. And just for a comparable, here in uh, Hong Kong, there are about 2,500 uh, people in this statistic living as a or as a ultra-high enough individuals considered, and I think that is even too low. And I think it's that it says it's all. I mean, it's always questionable to use a low absolute no, uh, number combined with a percentage growth for a statistic. So, who are the biggest investors in Mongolia? And uh, you know, besides copper, are there other things that uh, uh, are attracting them? I, I mean, the biggest investors are coming right now from China, South Korea, and Japan. And for example, there's a talk that a consortium led by Shenhua uh, Energy will take a take over Mongolia's largest coal mine from the government, uh, Tawan Tolgoi. So normally investments are generally made in the mining industry, so copper, gold and coal, or as in agriculture or in consumer products. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining us uh, this morning. That is Thomas Hugger, and he is the 
CEO and founder of Asia Frontier Capital. A quick look at the numbers for this morning. The Nikkei is up 71 points to 19,062. The Australia's ASX index is down 13 points to 5,802. And Sol's Cosby is up 16 points to 1,987. In currencies, one euro is currently worth 1.06 US dollars. Uh, one US, uh, the US dollar is trading at 121 yen and the your uh, excuse me the pound sterling is currently worth 11 hong kong dollars and 56 cents to solve a dispute you don't need to fight in court why not try mediation first mediation is flexible and confidential and can solve a range of disputes you can avoid confrontation and the risk of losing a case and the process saves money and time parties can participate fully in the process and in drawing up the settlement agreement When tension is eased and a relationship is maintained, it's a win-win situation. Mediate first for a win-win solution. I'm certainly looking forward to the weekend. What about you, Tobias? Uh, Every week's the same. Uh, Every week's the same. (laughs) Don't put a downer on it. (laughs) Okay, the time is now 8.19 a.m. And, uh, you know, founded in 1938, Kiwa Bakery is a household name in Hong Kong, famous for selling bridal cakes, mooncakes, and traditional Chinese pastries. Today we have their third generation... uh, director, executive director, Carlson Wong, uh, joining us in the studio. Good morning, Carlson. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on Money for Nothing. So, uh, Carlson, there's lots of talk, as, as you can see, you know, this morning about the rising U.S. dollar. Uh, my question is, what impact uh, does this and agricultural commodity price changes uh, have on the bakery industry here in Hong Kong? Yeah, well, for us, uh, a lot of our ingredients, raw materials are bought from um, overseas. So with the stronger U.S. dollar, um, there is a slight benefit in, in terms of currency benefit. Um, but, you know, for us, it's, it's not a significant um, impact. And um, like you said, the agricultural change, um, it's always ups and downs depending on the harvesting of different um, products. So say um, sugar, it's, it's at an all-time low, you know, since 2010. And so, you know, that, that has been, that has been something that's going on with, uh, um, something for our Chinese, uh, pastry. We use a lot of lotus seed. Um, lotus seed harvest hasn't been very strong in the past season. So, you know, the prices of that has gone up. So, um, it's always ups and downs for us. Always ups and downs. But this is a particularly good time of the year. Is it not just having uh, passed the Lunar Lunar New Year holiday? Excuse Lunar. I'm I'm tongue twisted this morning. (laughs) So excited to see you in the studio. That's why. (laughs) Just passed the Lunar New Year holiday. Uh, Is this a particularly good time post-holiday sales? Um, The Chinese New Year for us, um, I think... I've been looking at the overall market. There's a lot of um, talk in terms of like a slowdown or a negative impact on uh, retailers. Um, for us, we've been we've been okay. You know, we 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 saw pretty healthy double digit growth over Chinese New Year. Um, but after Chinese New Year, uh, we are seeing a little bit of a slowdown. Um, um, so in terms of uh, growth, um, it's a smaller growth than past years. Looking back compared to last year. Okay, so Carlson, you are third generation in 
this business, a true family business, one of the oldest, perhaps not the oldest in Hong Kong, but certainly one of the oldest. Um, but you have done other things, right? You you didn't start out at the family business uh, right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. You went, you did other things, you worked elsewhere, you studied elsewhere. Is that encouraged generally in Chinese family businesses? Or is the idea to sort of get the younger generation in right from the start before they develop bad habits, perhaps elsewhere? Um, well, well, speaking for myself, um, that wasn't really the plan because... Uh, it wasn't even the plan for for me to enter into the family business until later on in my career. Um, but I think looking at um, other Hong Kong family businesses, there does seem to be um, a trend, you know, for the the next generation to go. Um, collect and build experience uh, prior to joining the family business because that allows them to add more value, bring more to, to the team, to the company. But is it sort of an unconditional uh, uh, sort of agreement, if you will, that they will actually come back? Or is it ever felt that, oh my gosh, they're in danger of going rogue and <laughs> ending up in Nashville for good? <laughs> I have no idea. I'll let you know when I have my kids. Okay. <laughs> Next generation. Uh, Tobias, make sure you stick around to co-host on that particular day. Um, Kiwa is certainly a brand that has uh, sort of reinvented itself uh, recently here in Hong Kong, a traditional brand that's reinvented itself. Uh, Explain that a little bit for our listeners. Yeah, for us, um, we believe the core value of our business is heritage. Um, all the all the signature products that we have are closely tied in with uh, Chinese traditions and festivals and all. And so we try to really focus on that um, as we continue to grow, as we continue to market ourselves. Um, we 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 shouldn't forget um, what we're strong in. Uh, but the key is really in how we can make ourselves relevant. You know, what used to be popular 70 years ago may be different to what is popular these days. So how do we stay relevant in our product is uh, we... We don't change things drastically, but we we fine tune and modify things in terms of taste um, to make it more suitable for what people like these days. Um, but at the same time, we try to keep a lot of the original craft in creating and making these cakes um, so that the original taste is preserved. May I ask one question? Where do you see expansion? Because I can imagine the Hong Kong market might be saturated. Where would you go next? And how are you doing that? Um, for us, we're very much focused in Greater China. So um, Hong Kong is our main market right now. China obviously is a, is a growth market for us, and uh, so both in Hong Kong and also um, within China, you know, setting up more retail um, for us to expand into that market. Um, but for us, you know, we we are very. Um, how do you say stubborn in a way that we we want to um, we we don't want to compromise things just for the sake of growth. So uh, we we are manufactured in Hong Kong. We, we're still going to be a Hong Kong brand. Everything will be created um, by us in our own factory here. But you know how to get these products out to to more people. So Carlson, one of the things you mentioned was that you do need to sort of tailor and adjust to meet the needs of the people today. How are people's tastes changing? Well, people are people are not liking uh, 
sweet things as much. Mm. I find you know that that's one main thing if you want to talk about taste. Um, and also, people are more health conscious, and um, so for us is is not to change and become. Health food, you know. At the end of the day, we are traditional uh, Chinese snacks. But how do you make traditional Chinese snacks um, suitable to their taste? That maybe they don't like the sweet things as much. Or how do I incorporate um, lower sugar alternatives um, so that you know so that they would consider having this um, for their various festivals and daily consumption? Can I ask one small question? Given that it. Food, the importance of food over here. Do you consider yourself? Uh, how would you see your pricing compared to the complaint of people about inflation? How would you see? Are you a contributor to inf- inflation or the other way around? Because of the commodity prices, you're actually keeping prices relatively low. Um, I think we're definitely affected by inflation, in, and I think challenges that we face: um, uh, rental. Um, labor cost, um, raw material cost. So these are the three things that will continue to rise, and we're not really seeing much of a as a slowdown in that. So for us, it's always how how do we um, how do we factor in that cost? How do we protect that margin, and at the same time sell it at a competitive price? And so you know, oftentimes you'd find that um, our cost may increase at a certain percentage, but we can't just we can't just transfer that onto our retail price and, 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 and jack up the prices to that degree. Um, so that challenges us as to, okay, how do I scale things better? How do I better uh, manage um, my purchasing so that I hedge that risk? All right, Carlson, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Carlson Wong, and he is the executive director of Kiwa Bakery. Quick look at the numbers now. Uh, the Nikkei is up 146 points to 1,900. Excuse me, 19,137. Reading that wrong. Um, Australia's ASEX index is down 24 points to 5,791. And Sol's Cosby up 15 points to 1,985. Gold is currently at $1,153 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $57.23. Uh, One quick piece of news, local financial news. CityWire has launched its first Asia Awards, honoring the region's top performing fund managers and investment management groups. Stealing the show was Fidelity Worldwide Investments with 10 nominations and two manager wins for the Japan equity and global emerging market equity categories, respectively. And this was followed closely by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, winning group awards in the North America equity and the U.S. dollar bond categories. What do you think of those, Tobias? Well, at this moment, it's going to be interesting. But if you look at the general markets, um, it's like a a Munchausen proxy that uh, yesterday Germany explodes of the day before because of the euro weakness. And today the U.S. market explodes because the dollar is not that strong. So everything just seems to go up. And if everything seems to go up, asset managers make a happy business. Good parting thoughts for the day, Tobias. Thank you. Thank you for joining us as guest host this morning. That is Tobias Hexter, uh, Senior Strategist at True Partner. And I'm Renita Malhotrahora, wrapping up for this morning's Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast before we depart. Today will be mainly cloudy. It'll be cool with one or two rain patches in the morning. Currently, the temperature is 16 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 78%. 
Time for the half-hour news with Sam Butler. Police are hunting for a gunman following a robbery at a jewellery shop in Jimsa Joe last night. Police say the Putonghua speaking suspect shot a salesman in the chest before escaping with nine luxury Swiss watches worth five and a half million dollars. Detective Chief Inspector Mark Johnson says the suspect shot the worker after trying to buy the Patek Philippe watches with a credit card. The staff didn't believe that uh, he was the owner of the credit card. It's been recorded on the CCTV in the premises, but uh, we're still uh, reviewing this. But he just pulled out the weapon and fired at the uh, chest of the shop staff. So it took the staff by surprise, yes. They were suspicious of him, uh, him himself because he had been in the shop a couple of times that evening already. Uh, the clothing he was wearing, his demeanour, um, everything about him uh, suggested to them that he was not a genuine customer. An independent think tank says a new rule on shipping emissions will reduce sulfur dioxide pollution in Hong Kong by 12 percent. The regulation requires ocean-going vessels to burn clean fuel while berthing here. It'll be gazetted today and tabled in the Legislative Council next Wednesday. If approved, it'll take effect on July the 1st. Simon Ng is a chief research officer with Civic Exchange. The government realized that the ship emission is one of the major causes of air pollution in Hong Kong and also in the region. So I think they are looking into different options after this regulation to further tighten or further improve the air quality in Hong Kong and, you know, including other measures that will cut down ship emissions. And that should include considering having